Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, December 14th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Some practical tips to help you remember more of what you read. After 51 years, one of the Zodiac Killer's ciphers has been solved. And Brussels sprouts kind of became cool in the last few years. And it's not just because bars started serving them with a whole bunch of spices and bacon. It's also due to some pretty fascinating crossbreeding. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It may shock you to learn that I, as the host of this podcast about cool and interesting things, love learning about our world and the creatures on it and the big old messes that us humans have gotten into. I watch tons of documentaries, I'm always reading about half a dozen nonfiction books at once, and like most people, am constantly skimming or bookmarking more articles than I will ever actually be able to read. While there is much to be said about the pursuit in itself and the merit in absorbing the broader concept versus remembering every tiny detail, sometimes I do wish I retained more of what I consumed. And as you are also someone in our modern world of constant stimulation, I imagine you've also felt a similar frustration before. So I wanted to share some findings from education specialist Eva Keifenheim, recently published in Better Humans. She underscores that we don't learn just by our brains acting like recording devices, but rather by connecting new information with existing memories. This is part of why things like mnemonic devices work so well. With that in mind, Kaifenheim shares five practical tips to employ while reading that can help you acquire, retain, and retrieve more of the information that you read. These tips are synthesized from the work of Henry Rodiger and Mark McDaniel, professors of psychological and brain science and authors of Make It Stick. But Kaifenheim has added some of her own practical applications, and I've got a few of mine as well. So starting with elaboration. This is basically describing a key point in your own words, thereby associating it with things you're already familiar with, which encodes it more effectively into your long-term memory. You can do this by pausing your reading to ask yourself questions like, how does this relate to my life? Is there a way I can apply this to a situation in my work? How does it relate to other findings or insights I have on the topic? And crucially, if you're taking notes down, try to make sure they're in your own words, not just quoting the book. The next tactic is called retrieval. And this is engaging with and recalling parts of the text after you've finished reading it. So like at schools, this would be taking a quiz or writing an essay. The Rodiger and McDaniel point out that, quote, where more cognitive effort is required for retrieval, greater retention results, end quote. So something really pushing you to come up with your own opinion and not just, say, recognize the correct answer in a multiple choice question is going to lead to deeper, more long-term retention. And part of the reason for this is because we start to forget things just a few days after learning them. So by doing some activity to retrieve the information, we break up the forgetting process and make even more connections to help it stay in our memory. If you're not currently in school with retrieval activities built in, you can try something like writing a summary of every book that you read. This is something I actually started doing just on my own accord last year, and it definitely works, but I find it a tough habit to keep up with. But again, if you were to do that, make sure that you're not just quoting the book or parroting what other people have said about it. Ask yourself questions and form your own thoughts on the book in your summary. 
Moving on now to spaced repetition. Now this one is cool because it actually requires you to forget what you've learned. Because the harder your brain has to work to remember it, the deeper you'll be learning it each time. Because again, you're forming some of those connections with other memories as you work to recall the information. So it's much more effective to practice memorizing something once every day for 10 days as opposed to 10 times in a row on the same day. That spacing out actually leads to more effective learning because you're forgetting it a little bit each time. In practice, Kaifenheim suggests going back to the questions you may have asked yourself to guide the writing of a book summary a few weeks after you've read it, and see if you can answer those. You know, can you summarize the book? Can you recall the key takeaways? Think about how you've since applied any findings to your life. You probably won't be able to remember all of that without looking at your summary or consulting the book, but that's kind of the point. Now you're learning it again and building onto those memories. And this may all sound like a lot of work, so I've got good news for you on the next tip, interleaving. It's basically what all of us are constantly doing anyways, reading multiple things at once. And now I know there are some purists out there who only read one book at a time from start to finish. I like being that person as well. I think I end up completing more books that way. But research has shown that working on multiple problems or projects at once and returning to them over longer periods of time facilitates deeper learning. And part of that is because we can apply findings from one to the other. I mean, this is kind of what's at the heart of liberal arts education, the idea that what you learn in one subject will necessarily inform your findings in another, even if seemingly unrelated. So even if you're a one-book-at-a-time person, you're probably also listening to podcasts, reading articles, watching a TV show, things like that. It's very hard not to be consuming multiple streams of information all in one day these days. This is all me extrapolating a bit from the article's tips, but I would say that interleaving is something we're all doing naturally, and the key here is to do it intentionally. Be aware that you're doing it, and actively prompt yourself to make those connections between the book that you're reading and the TV show you're streaming and the problem you're trying to solve at work. Because you've applied it in different ways and connected it in unique, personal ways, you'll remember it all far better. Now, the final tip is self-testing. Part of why this is useful is because as we're reading a book or watching a documentary or something, we can often feel like we've absorbed everything in it and become an expert on it. But then, when we're prompted to explain it to someone, we may realize how little of it we actually retained. So self-testing is a good way to check yourself before you wreck yourself, essentially. To recalibrate as you go and get a sense of what information you retained and what you didn't. It's sort of like that old adage about the wisest man knowing that he knows nothing. And the best way to do this? Actually try explaining what you read to someone else. You'll be describing it in your own words, you'll have to explain new concepts. It's just what they say about how sometimes teaching can help you learn something more deeply. Of course, try to avoid doing this in any situation where you're assumed to be speaking from a place of authority, since, you know, you're clearly still just learning it yourself. But that's basically it. Apply what you're reading to your life, write book summaries, quiz yourself on those summaries a few weeks later, apply what you're learning from other media as you go, and explain what you've learned to other people. It's a tall order for every single book that you read, but I think you can take what works for you for some books and leave the rest for others. Because again, on the one hand, sometimes it's just about the experience of reading in the moment. 
But on the other hand, sometimes people want a little more return on investment for the time spent reading, or your job or the course that you're taking requires you to actually remember it. And if that's the case, I hope some of these tips help. Now go write a summary of this podcast so you can remember these five key takeaways. One of the Zodiac Killer's ciphers that has gone unsolved for over half a century has finally been cracked. The Zodiac Killer is an unknown person who murdered five known people in California in the 60s and 70s, but has claimed to have murdered as many as 37. Quoting Ars Technica, During the murder spree, the Zodiac Killer sent media outlets a series of letters taking credit for the slayings. To prove the authenticity of the claims, the letters included unreleased details and evidence from the crime scenes. In August 1969, following the murders of three of the five known victims, the Zodiac Killer sent three almost identical letters to three Bay Area newspapers. Each letter also included one-third of a 408-symbol cryptogram that the suspect said would reveal his identity. The killer demanded the papers publish the letters in full or he would kill again. A week after the letters were sent, a couple in Salinas, California cracked the cipher, the Zodiac Killer, the plain text revealed, said he was collecting slaves for the afterlife and that he wouldn't disclose his identity because doing so would interfere with those plans. In November 1969, after killing the remaining two known victims, the Zodiac Killer sent a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle that included a new puzzle. The cryptogram was known as the Z340, or simply the 340, because it contained 340 characters in it. End quote. And that cipher, 340, has now been solved by American software developer David Orenchak, Australian mathematician Sam Blake, and Belgian warehouse operator Jarl Van Eyke. Orenchak says that he's been working on the Zodiac's ciphers off and on since 2006, but the difference really came when he and the others wrote a computer program to help solve it. Quoting the San Francisco Chronicle, who received the cipher back in 1969, in most ciphers, like the 408, the solution consists mainly of figuring out which letters are represented by certain symbols. In the 340 cipher, it turned out the alignment of the words runs diagonally down the page, and occasionally they get shifted over a column. It's a complicated bit of code creation, Orenchak said, but a basic scheme for it can be found in at least one U.S. Army code manual from the 1950s, end quote. If you're really into code breaking, I'll put a link in the show notes to a video that Orenchek made that goes into depth about how he and the others solved it. As for what the cipher said, well, unfortunately, it's nothing that will help move the case forward. No new details, really, and while the Zodiac Killer alleged that one of the ciphers would include his name, this is not one of them. The 340 cipher reads, and this is kind of dark, so just skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it, quote, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise. All the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise, so they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life will be an easy one in paradise death." End quote. It includes his trademark misspelling of the word paradise with a C and references a TV show that had recently aired at the time with a call-in guest claiming to be the killer himself. 
The FBI has released a statement saying that they're aware of the solve but will not comment further out of respect for the victim's families and because it is still an open case. Two ciphers remain to be decoded, with one of them hopefully containing the name of the Zodiac Killer, so maybe this trio of private citizens will be able to apply what they've learned and use the app they built to solve those as well. More likely than not, you hated Brussels sprouts as a kid. They were bitter and weird, you were probably given them boiled, possibly without any kind of seasoning added. But now, Brussels sprouts have been reborn as one of the more popular bar foods. A growing number of bars and restaurants across the U.S. offer some kind of fried Brussels sprouts, maybe mixed up with bacon or drenched in balsamic vinaigrette, on their appetizer menu, and over the past five-ish years, more and more report it being one of their top-selling menu items. So what changed? Well, frying instead of boiling, and some clever chefs getting in on the game, but something actually happened before that. Something that started in the 90s, in the Netherlands. There, scientist Hans von Dorn wanted to figure out which chemical compounds in Brussels sprouts made them bitter. Working at a seed and chemical company, he was able to coordinate with other companies who sold Brussels sprout seeds and could search their archives containing hundreds of varieties of Brussels sprouts. They were on the hunt for older varieties that had lower levels of the bitter chemicals. They grew those older varieties in test plots, and if they were found to be truly less bitter, they crossbred them with newer varieties which had higher yields. It took several years, but they were finally successful in breeding a new variety of Brussels sprouts with all the advantages of both old and new. And word spread in the culinary world about a new Brussels sprout, especially in the U.S., where celebrity chef David Chang started selling a Brussels sprouts and bacon dish at his Momofuku restaurant in New York City. And from there, the trend took off, bolstered by the now much less bitter-tasting Brussels sprouts. Farmers are now making four to five times as much money on their crops of Brussels sprouts, they're appearing on cooking shows, and the number of acres in the U.S. with Brussels sprouts plants went from 2,500 a few years ago to over 10,000 today. So thus, Brussels sprouts' transformation from reluctant supper side dish to delicious appetizer a la mode was complete. I wonder what other healthy foods we can crossbreed to be more tasty. I mean, I know frying something and drenching it in sauce is going to make just about anything taste good, but the crossbreeding still played a major role, so I just think if we could find, I don't know, older varieties of kale that are actually sweet or something like that, you know, that would be awesome. As the great scholar Bill Nye once said, quote, Science rules. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I am going to go quiz myself on every article that I read so far today to make this podcast. I hope you had a great weekend, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 